here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have the news, and we have Tanana Reeve-Dew and Stephen Barnes talking to us about Afrofuturism and the movie Black Panther. There's never been a cinematic spectacle like Black Panther that so firmly establishes this kind of visual mythology of power, technological prowess, courage, uh, family, community. It's just, uh, it's, it's, really, it's a really important nutrient for the growth of Black folks. You know, the thing that I'm mindful of this week is that uh, representation is important. Mm -hmm. That it's important that you can see yourself not only in the future, but in the present. It's why movies like Black Panther are important. We also need to think about the representation of resistance, the representation of family. Like, the things that we consume in the public have a big impact on the way that people think about the world. You think about the police in movies, is that... You can't name an action movie that has police in it, like as characters, as central characters, where tons of people don't just die as a result of them finding the bad guy. That people's lives become just like the okay collateral consequences of, of what movies sort of tell us justice looks like. And we have to be mindful of those because people consume them over generations, though. Like, people's conception of justice and policing is largely influenced by shows like Cops that, that did real damage. Or things like, you know, you, you look at me and Sam were talking to someone about, about Bad Boys. It's like hundreds of people die in that movie, you know, like are, are shot at or are just casualties of the police. So representation is important about, about race, about justice, about a future, about freedom. That's it. Let's go. And you know it's the news with me, Brittany Packnett, former member of the Ferguson Commission and appointed by President Obama to the Task Force on 21st Century Policing, and now a leader in education, Clint Smith III, our resident academic, and Samuel Sinyangwe, our resident data scientist. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. And this is DeRay at DeRay, D-R-A-Y. I'm sparing you the I because we got feedback that somebody didn't like the I. That person probably is representative of millions of people around the world who feel that their names too have been done a disservice and have been disrespected by. I don't feel disrespected. That's dramatic, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't know about y'all, but I am a big Olympics fan. Um, I'm like whether it's the Winter Olympics, the Summer Olympics the Olympics in your backyard. I'm here for it all. Uh, there's a lot of nostalgic <laughs> value associated with it for me. Um, like growing up, we just always had the Olympics on like in the background and, and I don't know about y'all, but it's one of those things where like, I think we talked about this before in the context of the world cup where like black folks who sometimes like don't regularly watch these sports become very invested in certain sports when they see black people doing them. So like, you know, I have these memories. I like my grandpa being like very invested in like short track speed skating. And this man doesn't know anything about <laughs> short track speed skating. But he saw, what's his name? Shawnee. I don't know his, don't know his last name. But like this, the black guy who's been on the Olympic speed skating team for the last couple rounds. And he's just like out here talking about Shawnee like they went to school together. And like that's his, that's his grandson. I'm like, I'm your grandson. What are you talking about? <laughs> now the news. Some news that might have been overlooked by folks this week, uh, but that that has really huge implications, um, is that the U.S. Census Bureau announced that it is going to uh, keep the tw- for the 2020 census. It is going to keep keep the practice going that prisoners uh, are counted as residents of the place in which they are incarcerated, rather than uh, their home addresses and. 
this is really uh, harmful in a, in a lot of ways, uh, and it also is kind of hypocritical um, on behalf of the U.S. Census Bureau because it it you know you have folks who are in boarding school um, who are still counted at the their home residence where their parents live, um, but you don't you have people who are incarcerated who are counted you know, where they are imprisoned in the correctional centers, even though oftentimes these people are spending less time in the prison than folks are at the boarding school, if you want to talk about how much time somebody spends uh, per year. And so just to back up a little bit, for some background, in 44 states, uh, prisoners, you know, quote unquote, live in their prisons, uh, but for the purpose of the census, they cannot vote, right? So they are bodies who are counted in these districts, but they do not have any electoral power. Uh, and these are folks who are disproportionately people of color, who are disproportionately coming from the city, uh, both of which are places and demographics that tend to lean Democratic. Um, and so these are folks who would be voting most likely for Democratic candidates who are now being taken from having their bodies, you know, per the census, taken from the the cities and put into these rural districts. And thus it gives these rural districts that have smaller populations, larger populations and more potential representation um, without the people who are making the district more pop, like more populated, having any electoral power. Um, what makes this particularly egregious is the fact that the Bureau asked for public comment on its residence uh, rules two years ago, and over 99% of the nearly 78,000 comments regarding residence rules for incarcerated people urged the Bureau to count incarcerated people at their home addresses, which is almost always their legal address. Uh, but the Bureau ignored the fact that 99% of people who were asked um, about this issue said that it makes the most sense for our democracy to have these people counted uh, for the home address where they, where they live. Um, and so it's, the thing is that they're doing the, they're almost picking favorites, right? They're like picking favorites based on economic and racial privileges. Um, and, you know, for example, uh, the prison policy initiative has done this thorough report and they talk about how the majority of people incarcerated in Rhode Island, for example, spend less than a hundred days in the state's correctional centers. Uh, but if the same people were instead spending a hundred days in their summer residence or in their boarding school or in their vacation home, the Bureau would count them at their regular home address rather than this other address. Right. So, so there's a lot of sort of, um, inconsistency with regard to how this policy is, uh, manifested and and who gets to who has the opportunity to have themselves counted um, at their legal home address and who uh, the U.S. Census Bureau makes a decision um, about like where they technically live or don't live um, and this is something that's really important and obviously something that has implications in terms of giving certain places more electoral um, power giving them making it seem like they have larger populations than they do. Um, and all of the while in making it so that these people, these 2 million people, um, don't have their, the opportunity to, uh, vote themselves and to participate in, in the electoral process. There's so much in this, you know, when you talk about 99% of people having the same opinion about their own fate being ignored, um, it is par for the course often when we talk about uh, community engagement and any other euphemism we use for pretending like we are listening to the most affected and then doing what we were going to do anyway. And this is a point that I make continuously to people when they talk about how social change works and what they can do, especially if they have any kind of decision-making power whatsoever, is to remind folks that people do not simply want to be heard. They want to have power in dis making decisions that will affect them. Um, and so it, you can send out all of the surveys that you want, but if in the end you ignore uh, a clear majority opinion on what people have decided for their own fate, uh, then you are no better than the people who didn't send the survey at all, the people who didn't inquire at all. Uh, and so that is just really ringing in my head as I listen to you talk about this story, Clint. The other piece, you know, is that as you were talking and as I was reading this, it 
felt not unlike the three-fifths compromise, right, where uh, enslaved people were counted as three-fifths of a human being in order to increase population in southern states and districts uh, to increase their political power in, in the federal government, in the United States Congress. The powers that be have continued to ignore folks' humanity so that they can hoard their own political power. And every single time that we put power over people, we'll continue to have the same result. And I think that's a really important point you made, Britt, just real quick. The that the an analog to the three fifths compromise is like very real. And I'm wary of, of of direct comparisons of like antebellum slavery to mass incarceration, but it's almost like in some cases, in some sense it's worse, right? Because this is almost a five fifths compromise. Because you are not no we're no longer counting three fifths of them toward the population of this place without electoral power. Now you are counting the entire person to uh toward the population and still they have no electoral power right so like it is it's almost in in that context it's almost more egregious than what folks were doing in 1860 Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's it's wild and i think you know a couple of things one you have you know the prison population is overwhelmingly people of color uh but prisons tend to be built in rural, whiter communities and so what you're essentially doing is transferring you know the political representation and political power of of millions of people of color who are incarcerated from their communities and them right to you know the rural white communities in which they're being housed the other thing that's interesting is that you know i recently learned that this is unique to prison so uh, like for example people who are in boarding school uh, who are you know essentially housed elsewhere uh, away from their home for extended periods of time, uh, are not counted in this way by the census, uh, but prisoners are counted this way, right? And so, you know, if you are wealthy and go to a wealthy boarding school, you do not sort of give up your political representation to the, you know, the community in which you are you are going to school. But if you are incarcerated, you do. And so there's a there's hypocrisy in that. And I think the second piece that's important to note is that even though the census uh, is not going to be doing this this year. Uh, what is possible is to actually change some of this at the state level. And so there are a number of states like New York and California uh, that manually adjust the census data uh, for uh, for this. So they account for people's home addresses uh, and they change, uh, they sort of adjust the data in order to reflect people's home addresses instead of the addresses in which they're incarcerated. Um, so, so this is something that can be changed at the state level uh, while we continue to push, you know, the federal government to do things differently at a national level. Yeah, the only thing I'll add is, um, is that my wonderful home state of Maryland uh, and New York, where I used to live, uh, passed legislation to end prison-based gerrymandering and count incarcerated people at home. So they did that, and New York's law was upheld by the New York State Supreme Court. Maryland's law was upheld by the Supreme Court of the United States. And like uh, Sam said, Delaware and California actually passed this legislation to end prison-based gerrymandering, starting with the 2020 census. So it can happen, and uh, it is unfortunate that this Trump administration is not willing to, to, to engage this at the national level right now. But it is actually really possible for states and, and cities to... Uh, to, to really lead here. It's one of those things too that like people don't even think about, but in places like Baltimore where the majority of uh, people in prison are from cities, the city of Baltimore or from other densely populated areas in the state, when you count, when you remove these people from the city roles and put them in like the random small town where the prison's located, you are fundamentally changing what power looks like at the state level and that's just not fair. So I'm proud to be from a state that uh, that is fixed to this, but there are so many other places across the country that need to do it. So my piece of news is related to this. Uh, you know, we talked about prison-based gerrymandering and how that uh, takes away and compromises the political power of folks who are incarcerated. We've also talked in previous episodes about disenfranchisement, in particular in Florida, um, and how, you know, according to the Sentencing Project, about 6 million people are... Uh, prohibited from voting by law because of a a felony conviction. So just to dive deeper in that, an article came out in truthout.org called Disenfranchised by Misinformation. Uh, Many Americans are allowed to vote but don't know it. And so this is another aspect of disenfranchisement that doesn't get talked about as much, and that is that people, even after their voting rights are technically reinstated, so 
in states that are not the four states that permanently ban people from voting with a felony conviction. So those are, you know, Iowa, Florida, Virginia, uh, and Kentucky. Every other state, at some point, you have your voting rights restored, um, almost always. Uh, whether it is after you complete your sentence, sometimes even, you know, you never have your, your voting rights uh, taken away in places like Vermont. Um, but what that what they find in this article is that many people actually don't know that they've had their rights restored, and so you know many people believe that if you are convicted of a felony, then you actually never get your rights restored, even in states where that's not true. And so I did a little bit of digging deeper and looking at some of the research, uh, and found a particular study uh, that's called "Studies of Voting Behavior and Felony Disenfranchisement Among Individuals in the Criminal Justice System." Uh, and they look at three states, New York, Connecticut, and Ohio, and they survey uh, the population of people who are returning from prison. Uh, and you know, these are states where once you've completed your sentence, you're no longer disenfranchised, you're technically eligible to vote. So they survey people uh, who are released from prison. What they find is that 52% of those released from prison after completing their sentence uh, believe either they believe that they are permanently disenfranchised or they simply don't know whether or not they're disenfranchised if they've ever been convicted of a felony. Uh, so, and another 31% of people believes if you have even ever been arrested, you are permanently not eligible to vote. Uh, and so this is, this is actually really, really huge in regards to disenfranchisement because more people are actually have their voting rights restored than are permanently disenfranchised because there are only four states that permanently disenfranchise people. And yet, you know, you have 2.2 million people who are incarcerated, usually for like an average length of sentence for about four years. And after that, they return to communities. So you have millions and millions of people. The, the estimate is about 19 million people in this country uh, who have a felony conviction. And this research suggests that about half of them believe that they do not have the right to vote, even though uh, technically they're eligible to vote. And so, you know, this, number one, what this means is that, you know, in terms of our advocacy and how we're talking about disenfranchisement, uh, that it's important to not only be seeking to end the laws that that legally disenfranchise people, but also to make sure that people know who are not currently disenfranchised, who've had their voting rights restored or are newly eligible to vote, that they too can vote. Um, and this is so important because, you know, if you try to register to vote and you are technically supposed to be disenfranchised, then it's actually considered voter fraud. So people don't want to register to vote if they don't think that, if they think that they are still disenfranchised because they will be breaking the law again. Um, and so we have to be clear about when people are eligible to vote, engage in targeted outreach to make sure people know that they have that power to vote and that they can exercise it. Or else, in, a, in essence, what, what's happening is that there's a de facto disenfranchisement uh, layered on top of the legal disenfranchisement that is just as pervasive and has just as large an impact on voting rights. Part of what uh, you're talking about, Sam, part of what it illuminates is that that having the right to something does not necessarily correlate with having access to something. Um, and, and part of it is that, you know, it's a set of very purposeful tactics on behalf of folks who want to keep people who are coming back from uh, being incarcerated from voting because they know that it represents a threat to, to their power. Uh, it, they know that it represents a threat to their electoral power because these folks are disproportionately people who would be voting Democratic. They would be voting for candidates on the left. And and part of what it reminds me of, you know, is that like, you know, this, what pe some people don't understand is that black folks in this country had the right to vote in 1870 after the passage of the 15th Amendment. But just because there you had black people had the right to vote did not mean that there were not a, a range of uh, egregious and insidious ways that people specifically in the South, but not singularly the South came up with like, you know, poll taxes and counting jelly beans in a jar and reciting the constitution by heart. And, you know, and all of these sort of like ways that were meant to specifically prevent people from having access to the polls that were technically not in violation of their right to vote. And just to build off that point, Clint, about purposefully obfuscating that, you know, only half of states actually notify people when they have their voting rights restored. 
um, like when they are eligible to vote, whether it's completing your sentence or, or what have you, only half of states actually uh, have a law in place that requires them to notify uh, people that they can vote. And of, among the states that actually do notify people, you know, those types of notifications vary. So in New York and North Carolina, uh, once you are released uh, from your sentence, you get this packet, which is a really dense packet with a bunch of papers in it. And on one of the papers in the bottom right corner is a paragraph that says you can vote. But, you know, again, a lot of people uh, will not read that, will not see that. It is not made prominent. It is not, you know, a, a single thing that people receive that, that would make it easier to see. Many people uh, may not uh, be able to, to read it at the level of, of the document. It's a pretty dense document. Um, and so, you know, that's it. That's what you get. And if you miss that, you know, you are completely dependent on your own uh, to, you know, find out what your, what your rights are and, and how you can exercise them at, at tremendous penalty. You know, if you are wrong, you, you could go back to prison. Um, and so, you know, the system is not at all set up for people to succeed. And when you look at the research, what's clear is that, you know, in places that make an intentional effort to notify people, uh, like for example, in Connecticut, uh, there was an experiment that was done where they partnered with the secretary of state's office to send a letter to people who were recently uh, released from their sentence. And that letter said, you have your right to vote back. And they were able to increase turnout among, you know, formerly disenfranchised people by 25 to 30% just because they received that letter notifying them that they could vote. So these things really do matter um, to people's ability to participate in the political process. So, so not only do we need to change the law, but we also need to make an intentional effort to keep people informed about what the law is and what their rights are. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. ATLP.com slash people. Here you are. BPM's high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue. 
panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. So we make an intentional effort on the pod to discuss news that is often going underreported or unnoticed. Often that brings into the forefront for us actions of this administration that are happening just under the surface, out of plain sight. And unfortunately, even after the valiant efforts of so many, especially people in the reproductive rights community and the disability rights community, uh, all the work that they did to save ACA, the secretive, harmful workings of this administration still continue to extend to healthcare. And we discussed before how long it took for CHIP to actually receive its funding once again, even though uh, CBO actually let Congress know that running the program would actually save the government money. Uh, And now the administration is messing with Medicaid. How are they doing that? They are creating certain hard limits and barriers to access for folks who receive this service. Now, as a reminder, Medicare is for um, elderly people in our community and Medicaid is for folks currently living in low-income circumstances. Um, So with Medicaid, you have to understand that it is a program that runs in partnership between between states and the federal government. Um, what has always been allowed in the Medicaid process is the application uh, by states for certain waivers so that they can be exempt from certain requirements at the federal level. Now, under previous administrations, including the Obama administration, all of those waivers had to come with some kind of guarantee of coverage expansion so that whatever they were exempting themselves from wouldn't come at the cost of the beneficiaries of Medicaid. That is not the case moving forward with this administration. So here are some of the waivers that have been uh, created by states. Uh, There are states that are adding work requirements, which the Obama administration was very clear that they were not going to allow. Uh, So in places like Kentucky and Indiana, people have to show that they've worked a certain number of hours in order to receive their Medicaid benefits. So in places where uh, work insecurity is already very high, you're now creating an additional barrier for people to get access access to their benefits. Um, There are also nine states that have actually increased their premiums, which is fascinating given that the number one GOP argument against ACA surviving was that it was going to increase people's premiums. Uh, And so in places like Kentucky, that premium can be as high as 4% of your income, which is just an astronomical price when you are thinking about um, potentially life-saving treatments and drugs that people need every day to survive. Uh, And so now that way Waiver applications don't have to include coverage expansion. We're seeing these high barriers come from states that were previously unable to get them through. Uh, And the sad news is, as far as states in this administration are concerned, this is just the beginning. There are states that are even looking at putting a lifetime cap or limit on just how many Medicaid benefits an individual can draw down. And so I wanted to call attention to this because as we have been rightfully celebrating the protection that many people have ensured came for the Affordable Care Act, there are ways that this administration and Republican governors all across the country are chipping away at people's health care benefits. Um, and it let's be very clear, this comes at the highest of costs because this is an issue of life or death for people. And what's wild about this is that you know, there's so little oversight of, uh, in this whole process. It is oftentimes, you know, the governor's office, uh, partnering with you know the federal government, the Trump administration, to make this happen without the state legislature signing off on it, you know this is something that is is able to happen with very little recourse because you know until we can actually put you know elect these governors out of office, which we need to do in November, um, you know there is not much that Congress can do. Uh, there's not much that you know the state legislatures can do, and, and I think that's really. Uh, why this is particularly pernicious because this affects so many people. It fundamentally affects uh, one of the largest, you know, healthcare programs in the country, uh, and this is all being allowed to happen, you know, through administrative and executive actions. Something that I always think about when I think about Medicaid, um, and that I've been reflecting on a lot over the last few few months, is is the way that we think about 
and define poverty. It's interesting the way that we discussed the poverty line, like the quote unquote poverty line, as if it were this thing that kind of fell from the sky and and was enshrined in stone and was like very clear, written by the founding fathers. But like it, it's important for people to remember that this is it is an ar- a largely arbitrary number that is not actually reflective of the economic conditions that people and the material conditions that people are experiencing, right? And and that the federal poverty level does not change based on the state you live in or the city you live in where the clearly the cost of living in Kansas is like fundamentally different than the cost of living in New York City and yet the federal poverty level is the exact same for all of those things. And I say that because to qualify for Medicaid, um, you have to have an income at or below 138% of the federal poverty level. And for an individual, the federal poverty level is $12,000.60. And so 138% uh, of that is $15,856. And that was starting in 2014. And, And what's important to remember, like, is that if you make 20, let's say you are an individual making $20,000, I would argue, and I think most people would agree, you are still living in poverty, considering like the cost of living in 2018 in most places, and yet you don't qualify for Medicaid. So you are ostensibly responsible for your own medical costs, and yet you live in like a deeply impoverished context. And I just think that that's really important for us to keep in mind and to sort of complicate and push the way that we're thinking about what poverty is or isn't even how we're defining it is that like the federal poverty line is a metric that that actually fails to capture who is or is not living in poverty and like someone who is you know making a few thousand dollars more than what the federal poverty line denotes as as being impoverished is still a poor person I was laughing with this administration that they're playing the the long game, and so I'm uh, I'm trying to figure out like what the long game is here. When we think about the the sum effect of what um, what happened with or what they're doing with immigration and all the work around the border and the Muslim ban, is that it is projected now that the sum total of that is going to keep the country to be a majority white country for at least five years longer than we have projected. You know, America was supposed to be a majority minority country in around 2042. And now it looks like it's going to be a little closer to 2050 because of what Trump has done so far. And with this, it's like, what is the long game of like denying people health care or making it harder for them to get access to health care? And it just sort of boggles my mind that that there is that there is either money to gain or that there's some benefit to restricting people's access especially people who are who already can't afford um, so many other things, which are the people who qualify for Medicaid. And, you know, we said on a previous episode, but half the kids born in the country are actually born via Medicaid. So it's not an insignificant program. It, and you think about, you know, neonatal and prenatal care that is required for babies to be born healthy, that there'd be so many kids who would never see uh, the light of day if their parents like didn't have access to, to health care. And so I'm trying to figure out like what the long game here is, and I can't think of anything that's just not pernicious and a complete disregard for people who aren't wealthy. My news is about Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania, if you uh, have not been following it, Pennsylvania submitted a a map, uh, a district map for uh, the upcoming elections, and it got turned down by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court as being uh, gerrymandered and it went to the it was appealed to the United States Supreme Court and they denied the stay so Pennsylvania has to redraw the congressional districts which is a good thing for democracy they actually just resubmitted new proposed uh, districts that seem to be almost identical to the ones that were denied by the courts the first time but what is more fascinating about this story is that uh, there is a, a legislator in Pennsylvania who actually is trying to remove all of the justices on the uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court who said that the that the map was gerrymandered. And it's like this crazy thing. And, you know, I think about this because you see that there are rules in place, that there is, there's supposed to be a system of checks and balances, that that's supposed to be a bedrock of the way we've configured our democracy. 
and the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania said that this map was gerrymandered and wasn't fair. And what you find is a legislator pushing to get rid of all the judges on the court so that uh, he can push through a map that makes no sense. And and like these are the things that you don't even realize have happened until you look up and you're like, wow, I didn't, you know, here we go. This is how we got to uh, really crazy politics. But I wanted to bring it here because I was shocked when I read it. But it also made me more mindful that we got to like pay attention to even the things that we thought were going to be okay. Yeah, this reminds me of what uh, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans did with uh, Gorsuch, right? They changed the composition of the Supreme Court, right? So we talk about gerrymandering in Pennsylvania. Like, luckily, this was a state Supreme Court decision, which is based on the state uh, constitution in Pennsylvania. Otherwise, it would be more likely for the Supreme Court to, to you know, take this up. But for the other gerrymandering cases, uh, which have an incredible bearing on congressional representation and democracy, you know, that's being decided now by a Supreme court that is a Republican majority Supreme court because they stole a justice, right? They stole a justice. They stole Obama's ability to appoint uh, Merrick Garland and put in Gorsuch. And now we're seeing sort of the reverse happen with Republicans in Pennsylvania, where if the court is a different composition than they like already, then they'll just remove the justices they don't like. So, you know, that's the type of uh, anti-democratic thinking that uh, is increasingly becoming the norm in the Republican Party, and and that's bad for democracy. You know, I was reading about the founder of the Kaplan study method, Stanley Kaplan. Stanley Kaplan's intention was essentially to demystify the scholastic aptitude test, the SAT, and other aptitude tests that were being specifically leveraged to keep Jewish people like Stanley Kaplan out of higher education. And when the folks running Ivy League schools were asked why they were using these this way. They essentially talked about Jewish people as being too hardworking and therefore embarrassing the students that were already there <laughs> by their by their strong worth work ethic, um, which like is are is laden with like a bunch of stereotype threat. To be very clear, um, and like you know. Stereotypes are are harmful in lots of ways, even model model quote unquote minority ones. Um, so I want to be clear about that. But I was reading it and I was just astounded by the fact that they were essentially saying, "We know that what we are doing is wrong, but we are doing it to protect our mediocrity and our way of life, right? And our way of life depends on the exclusion of other people." And that just—I was so reminded of that story as I was reading this piece of news because. Corrupt power will stop at nothing to protect itself. When they gerrymandered this map, they knew exactly what they were doing. Folks worked on this together um, over a long period of time, to your point about the long game, DeRay. And when it was discovered to be as problematic as it absolutely is, the solution here is not to have a logical argument about why things were that way, because there is no logic behind it. It was about the protection of corrupt power. Um, So instead, the solution is let us just protect our way of life by getting rid of you. Uh, we've seen that theme come up over and over and over again in America. My hope is that the folks who um, would would be engaged with so-called impeachment proceedings would be able to see right through this. I've really just been reflecting, I think, on on how skewed what we call our democracy actually is and i think we know that for like a lot of different reasons but like if you really just sit down and think about it the fact that they are able to hold 13 of 18 congressional seats and that they did not win the majority of the votes like that should be outrage that that should outrage everyone the same way that like presidents who or presidential candidates who win the popular vote are not winning the elections and and i think that it is I even struggle to like call ourselves uh, a, a democracy in the in the way that it is like act in with regard to what the word is actually supposed to mean. And I think to Brittany's point, people the Republican Party recognizes, and Brandon Terry talked about this a little bit last week on the podcast. The Republican Party recognizes that they are they have they are existing in like under existential threat because of the demographic shifts of this country. So they are going to continue to bend every rule, break every rule, 
turn, you know, turn everything over, do whatever they have to do in order to maintain power. And like what we've seen over the last year of Trump in power is that like people's principles but are secondary to them maintaining and expanding their power. Clint, that's uh, wild. And I think it shows up in every sort of layer of the the system, right? It's not just the electoral college. It's the fact that that's built on, you know, a model of Senate representation that, you know, allows states that have very small populations to exercise so much control over everybody else and that strips DC of any Senate representation, which is layered on top of Congress, which is gerrymandered such that like we can expect in 28, like in this November that Democrats will need to win by more than 6% of the margin, the popular vote margin in order to win the majority of house seats. Like that's just a expectation that I guess we've had to come to accept as like the only scientific way to win enough majorities in enough of these gerrymandered districts in order to retain a majority of the house that we deserve if we can win, you know, 50 plus one. Right. And I think that's just, you know, and then you look at the state level, what's happening in Pennsylvania. You look at what happens in so many places, even at the local level where you have city councils that are gerrymandered in a way where I think of Baton Rouge, where it's a majority black jurisdiction, but it has a majority white uh, council representation because of how they've gerrymandered their, uh, you know, city council districts. So this is happening at every level. And it is something that is going to take a very, uh, you know, broad and determined and longstanding uh, effort in order to overturn. That's the news. Pandora makes it easy for you to find your favorite music. Discover new artists and genres by selecting any song or album and we'll make you a personalized station for free. Download on the Apple App Store or Google Play and enjoy the soundtrack to your life. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. And now my conversation with Tanana Reevedu and Stephen Barnes about Afrofuturism and the upcoming movie Black Panther. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Excited to have you both here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Now, both of you study Afrofuturism and representations of Black people, and you've contributed to this field in in so many ways. Can you help the people who don't know this work well? Just understand a, a little bit more about your background. Sure. T, why don't you go first? Sure. My name is Tanana Reeve Dew. I am an author and a screenwriter. I teach Afrofuturism and Black horror at UCLA, as well as uh, private courses. And I'm probably best known for my novels, My Soul to Keep, about Ethiopian immortals, uh, the living blood. Um, I write little science fiction. I write horror. So I've been swimming in these waters since about 1995. Hi, my name is Steve Barnes, and I've been an Afrofuturist novelist for about 30 years at this point. Um, And I I guess the books I'm most... uh, known for our uh, alternate histories like uh, Lion's Blood or futuristic novels um, like Street Lethal um, and Gorgon Child, things of that nature. So I've also written for television, Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, Stargate, and Andromeda and things like that. So I've been around for a while. And what is Afrofuturism? I ask because Black Panther's coming out and in so many ways this world will be bandied about in popular culture in ways that I'm not sure it's been in in a while or ever. How would you describe Afrofuturism to people who either have had no exposure to it or don't think they've had exposure to it? That's a great question. And it's not always an easy question to answer because Afrofuturism means slightly different things to different people. I think a lot of people hear the term Afrofuturism and they just think, okay, Black folks in the future, 
Black Futurity, and that is part of it. But really, it's more of a movement. And I tweeted the other day, I would call it like throughout the diaspora. So it's not African-American. Throughout the diaspora, it's an artistic, cultural, and social movement invoking a reimagining of race, racial constructs, history, like Steve's novel Lion's Blood is an alternate history, and liberation themes through what we call speculative, um, a speculative lens. Speculative means it's myth, fantasy, science fiction, horror, uh, in music. Uh, It's using technology to change uh, the sound and to move music forward. So it really involves tech, music, literature. But the shortest definition is a reimagining of a Black future and past. You know, I think that... uh... Afrofuturism, from my point of view as a, as a novelist, uh, is a, a subset of science fiction. Uh, science fiction is basically fantasy that is anchored to what we understand of the sciences. Um, so it, it involves technology, it involves interactions with technology, discovery, um, things of that nature. Uh, Afrofuturism would be this l- literature applied specifically to the children of the diaspora. Uh, either about them or from their perspective, so um, it's if you if if you if you look at science fiction as a way of looking at the world and creating new myths, new understandings of where we fit in the universe, then Afrofuturism would be specifically where do black people fit in the universe, um, and I think that that is, would would cover a lot of my own perspectives on it. Now, why does this matter? Like, what makes Afrofuturism important in the spectrum of genres? And why does a movie like Black Panther matter in a moment like this, besides just having black people in film? Uh, and, and what does it do to the way that we think about stories themselves? Well, representation, especially fantastic representation, really helps us see ourselves in a broader mirror. You know, so many of us, especially as African-Americans, have lived under these sort of constraints of how we can even dream. So in early cinema, we were the maids and housekeepers and servants and comic relief. Uh, in genre, like horror, we were the first to die, the sacrificial Negro. So imagine, you know, being a kid in the 1960s, seeing someone like Nichelle Nichols on Star Trek as a little black girl or even a black boy and realizing, oh, hold up, we're in the future, we're on the deck of the ship, uh, and it just is such an empowering thought that you can help create a future where you've been so absent. And we've had little dribs and drabs across the years, but there's never been a cinematic spectacle like Black Panther that so firmly establishes this kind of visual mythology of power, technological prowess, courage, uh, family, community. It's just, uh, it's, it's, really, it's a really important nutrient for the growth of Black folks. I think that uh, the, every culture in the world has mythologies that connect them to the origin of the universe and says things about where they're going to be heading in the future. Um, black Americans had their mythologies, their languages, their names, their cultures, all stripped away from them. And what happened is that white people replaced those with the mythologies that made them central in our universe. Um, you can't thrive that way. You know, the, every group of people has the right to consider themselves to be, you know, healthfully superior. <laughs> that is just the way human beings are. So Afrofuturism or science fiction was uh, a way of connecting Northern Europeans largely to the center of the universe. So Afrofuturism is simply allowing us to place ourselves as central actors and movers and shakers in the way we see our existence, rooting us in the past, opening the door to our future. It's critical. I, I think that mythology is is not dessert. It's meat and potatoes. It's, it's part of the way that our consciousness organizes itself. You have to believe that you can do something before you'll even try to do it. And if you don't try, you never can. Are there any misconceptions about the genre of Afrofuturism that we should name? You know, uh, misconceptions. One of the things that I've noticed is that for people in circles who don't quite get the excitement about Black Panther, uh, let's say they're non-Black folks or non-Marvel fans, or, you know, over to the racist side where they're sort of actively uh, hostile (laughs) toward Black Panther, um, as if it's something 
dangerous, as if it's something against white people. Or to go to the other side of, say, um, super woke uh, Black folks who look at it as sort of um, misplaced excitement. <laughs> like, why does a movie matter? Uh, I, we know it's not going to pay the rent. We know it's not going to solve income disparities and make our schools better. We get that. We still have our bills waiting for us the day after we see Black Panther. But but, but, but what it will do is electrify us as adults even. You know, the 30-second line of dialogue in uh, Captain America's Civil War, where the member of the Dora Milaje said, move or be moved, Black women lost their minds over, like, one line of dialogue. <laughs> so it, because it's power, because it's power. And we can't even calculate the impact it will have on children. You know, I'm just thinking about adults and how powerful it makes me feel. I feel like I'm in a in a spaceship in my car when I think about Black Panther. But for children, we're planting seeds that are going to sprout in ways we can't even predict. So no, it's not going to solve things immediately. But what it can do is literally help change the world. I think that if you ask how do people accomplish something, they have to have an idea of what they want to do, and they have to believe that they can do it. They have to believe that accomplishing it will bring them more pleasure than pain. Um, if they don't believe that, they won't try. So in life, often things can be so harsh that it's like we can't see the forest for the trees. Our noses are right up against the tree, so we can't see the overall pattern of what's going on. You know, all we can see is the deprivation. We can't see how far we've come, and we can't see how beautiful the future can be. I think that by creating images like this, um, the the cultural impact feels to me like Star Wars times roots. Um, it, it, we've never had anything like this before, and what you're seeing when people are buying out theaters and, and raising money to send entire schools to go see it is a hunger um, for the kinds of imagery that white people have given their children 24-7, you know, since the beginning of our country. You know, that they are great, that they're wonderful, that God loves them best, that they can accomplish anything. That is what children need to hear. And that's what we all need to feel about ourselves. And we've, you know, slavery in many ways is was the process of turning wolves into dogs, domesticating human beings, taking away their agency, their dreams, and making them believe that they're dependent upon the person who puts the kibble on the floor. Um, when you start waking up from that, when you start becoming a, an adult in the particular sense of, of understanding that you have the right to protect and raise your children, that you have all the rights anyone else has, when once you open your eyes to that, you become dangerous. So it, it's, not a, it's not an accident that it's taken so long to get something like this on the screen. And it's not an accident that people are responding to it so powerfully. But, but I will say that throughout a lot of traditional um, science fiction and horror, uh, you, you do have um, negative images of black folks, you know, that we're not only underrepresented, but when we have been represented, it has been in very negative ways, uh, sort of servants and sacrifices, um, coonishly, as coons, certainly in cinema. So there is that history that we're trying to break away from within genre, because a lot of black readers and movie viewers will say, well, I don't like science fiction or I don't like horror. I don't like comics because guess what? Either they weren't represented or they weren't represented well. Well, and the lack of representation can be pretty pretty brutal. I mean, if you have a movie like When Worlds Collide, where the Earth is going to be destroyed, and you're only going to save, you know, 100, 150 human beings, and every single human being who's being saved is white. Um, and you watch that as a child. Um, the message is very clear. You don't matter. There's no room for you now, and there's no room for you in the future. It's devastating. There were no black people in the original Star Wars, you know? So there have been strides to to change that. But what does that say? I mean, I loved Star Wars as a kid. I honestly didn't notice consciously that there weren't any black folks in that movie. But when you get older, you start to wonder why you're absent and what that means. Well, also, when you have a movie like Black Panther and you hear white people saying, well, why aren't there more white people in it? Um, you know, the, the thought is, well, what are you saying about Star Wars, about Lord of the Rings, about most of the Marvel movies? And everything. You know, <laughs> the, yeah, about everything. Uh, what you're saying is that that was that we should have taken that as an insult. 
that all along we should have been offended when all along they were telling us, oh, it doesn't matter. It obviously does matter. And it matters a lot. We, every group of people tells their children that they are precious and spins stories of their ancestors and their descendants to create a context. This is, this is what life is. This is what your potential is. This is what the future can be. And when you're cut off from that, when someone strips away those stories, those cultural stories, they it's basically like wiping your hard drive. And what they do is they get to implant Slave 1.0, and they will tell you who you are. And inevitably, if you let someone else control your mythologies, they will always make it disadvantageous to you and control your future. Yeah, they they're going to try to control you. They're going to make they're going to make up your identity to benefit them. Now, what should people know or think about heading into seeing Black Panther? Well, I I could tell you I've seen Black Panther. I was really really privileged to go to the Hollywood premiere with a reporter for Entertainment Weekly. I'll have to shout him out. Anthony Bresnikan, thank you for that ticket. And of course, like any moviegoer, I was afraid that my hopes had been driven too high, that all the best moments would be in the trailer. I've been burned that way before, and that it would somehow be a massive disappointment. (laughs) You know, I was just afraid because I wanted to succeed so much. And none of that was true. It was everything I thought. So if people who have seen even just the initial trailer, I don't even advise people to, to, to watch more trailers before they see it. The initial trailer shows you everything you need to understand about this movie, uh, the strength of it, the beauty of it, uh, the singularity of it. It's all there. So so even if you've never read a Black Panther comic, even if you've never seen another Marvel movie, it doesn't matter. Black Panther is a standalone. That's why the critics are saying it's unlike, I think, any other Marvel movie. It has its own look and feel, and it is a standalone story. And what about the universe? Where does Wakanda sit in terms of the Marvel universe? Wakanda was originally created in 1966 by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, um, the the basically the, the the fathers of of the Marvel universe, the godfathers or the grandfathers of the Marvel universe, and it was created specifically because Kirby and Lee saw that there were no black superheroes of any consequence. So they they did it very deliberately. And he was created to be the you know the smartest, richest, and one of the toughest human beings on the planet. Wakanda. Uh, sits is a, a mythical African kingdom that was never conquered by Europeans that is sitting on top of the world's greatest res- natural resource, a, a metal called vibranium. And that metal enabled them to develop separately from the rest of the world an incredibly advanced world, that uh, an, an advanced kingdom that is um, hidden. The rest of the world does not know very much about Wakanda at all. And and get this, Captain America's shield, that oh-so-powerful shield by iconic Captain America, is actually made out of vibranium. So it's it's almost like a, a secret society <laughs> that is helping to, to power uh, other superheroes. So Wakanda uh, is a repository of wealth and uh, knowledge, you know, super science. Uh, Black Panther himself over the course of, you know, five decades of of stories about him has manifested as one of the smartest, toughest, most savvy, most strategic thinkers in the entire Marvel universe. Um, and, and Wakanda is uh, one of the gems in Marvel's crown. It really is. Well, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about Afrofuturism and the movie. Is there anything else that should be on people's minds as we wade into what will surely be a celebration of both blackness and the genre of Afrofuturism? Well, I think one thing people want to bear in mind, um, as someone who teaches Afrofuturism, I've noticed that a lot of the students who are drawn to speculative fiction are world builders in real life. There tends to be a bit of an activist bent to especially um, black creatives who are exposed to this sort of wider tableau. It's like, oh, I don't just have to tell history. I don't just have to tell survival stories. Although those those are very important. But I can expand my vision and my universe. Uh, People have even used work like uh, Octavia Butler's uh, Parable of the Sower to to create real-life community building. So I, I hope, and I, and I know, in fact, that after the lights come up and people are leaving the theater, they're going to be fueled by that power of Afrofuturism to say, hey, that was fun, but what can I do now to create a real different future? 
Perfect. Well, thanks so much. Consider you both friends of the pod and can't wait to, uh, to see you back on the pod. And, you know, I can't wait to see the movie. Great. Great. Thank Fantastic. You, thanks for having us. Well, thanks so much for listening to Pod Save the People. Make sure you tell a friend and I will see you back here next week. Here you are. BPM's high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Finding the music you love shouldn't be hard. That's why Pandora makes it easy to explore all your favorites and discover new artists and genres you'll love. Enjoy a personalized listening experience simply by selecting any song or album, and we'll make a station crafted just for you. Best of all, you can listen for free. Download Pandora on the Apple App Store or Google Play and start hearing the soundtrack to your life.